Hello, uh, welcome to Oasis School, uh, June 2008. We're going to study the Book of Revelation. As an introduction to this study, I'm going to quickly go through the timing or the order of events in the Book of Revelation. I'll go through chapter by chapter, giving you a brief resume of what it's all about and where it fits. So all I'll be giving you is the chapter headings. I won't be reading the scriptures. So here goes. Revelation 1, 1 to 3. God the Father gave Jesus this prophecy to show us what is to take place shortly. Revelation 1, 9 to 10. John was on the Isle of Patmos in AD 95-96 and the rest of Revelation 1 is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The last sermon that Jesus preached on this earth had an audience of one. Revelation 1, 17-19 In verse 17 we see John falling, an appropriate reaction. In verse 19, John is told to write the message down and Jesus himself divides this message up into three sections. What John had seen, what is now and what will take place later on. And most of the book of Revelation comes into this third category, that is from chapter 4 to the end of Revelation, is what will take place. Here's some background information you'll find helpful for understanding the book of Revelation. 1. The Tribulation is a period of holy war. Holy war is not what the Islamic nations say it is. They say if you do not like another nation, declare war on it and call it a holy war, which means that they are not afraid to die in it. That is not the biblical idea of a holy war. Holy war is when God starts fighting against a nation. It's when God himself declares war on part of the earth. It's happened many times in history, but there's still more to come. An easy example would be Genesis 6 verse 3. This gives the flood, which was universal, which means that this judgment came on all mankind. God tells the people of the earth that they have 120 years to repent. He doesn't just judge, he always gives a period in which people can repent first. That shows us God's love. And after the period given for them to repent, the flood came. Noah was preaching faithfully all the time he was building the ark. Judgment coming, change your minds. But they didn't, and God declared holy war. He used the flood, and you will always find he uses the elements as his weapons hailstones, earthquakes, wind, famine, etc. So there is holy war. You can find other examples of holy war in the books of Joshua and Judges, where God does use the Israeli army, but he also uses the natural elements against the Amorites. But again, God gave the Amorites 400 years to repent, but they didn't. You will find that in Genesis 15 where God is about to give Abraham the land and he tells him that he cannot do it yet because the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its height. So in the tribulation period, holy war is declared on the earth which has not repented and again God uses the elements to judge. 2. 
The tribulation is seen from the position of heaven. John is taken to heavenly places and looks down on the earth. In the ancient world, the king or whoever was in charge would have a battle plan. He set up his headquarters on a hill overlooking the battleground so he could see what was going on and he issued his battle orders from there at various stages of the battle. You see, this was Moses when he ascended the mountain held up his arms as commanded by the Lord. When he kept his hands up, they were winning. When his hands dropped, the battle began to go to their adversaries. The orders given by the king were not given a time limit. He would wait for the first order to be completed before he gave another order to bring in the next phase of the battle plan. The book of Revelation is seen just like that. God is seen in heaven in charge and he is reading out his battle campaign. Brilliant. Revelation 5, 1-5, that deals with the seal judgments. One seal is on the outside of the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. The other seals are on the inside, so there's one seal outside and six inside. And the ones inside hold various sheets of the scroll together. When you break a seal on the outside, you can open up the scroll until you reach the next seal. And you go on like that until you've opened all the seven seals. When all the seals are broken, you have God's battle plan fully laid out. So this scroll deals with his battle plan for the tribulation period. The first scroll covers the beginning of the tribulation period. The last one covers the end of the tribulation period. And Jesus opens up the scroll. Revelation 6, 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 are the first seal. A horse always means warfare, but a white horse means victory. Jesus comes back on a white horse. Here at the beginning of the tribulation you have a battle and it is a victorious battle. That is the start of the campaign of the leader of the tribulation period. This is the man of sin as the Bible calls him, or the Antichrist himself. In a short space of time this man is leader of the whole world. Incidentally, the fact that he carries no bow, he carries a bow but no arrows, indicates that it's a political victory he wins, not a military one. Revelation 6, 3 and 4, and the second seal. A red horse always means warfare, but a different kind of warfare from the white horse. This warfare has a lot of bloodshed, but it doesn't actually achieve anything much. So the tribulation period starts with peace but doesn't last for long and a battle starts up and peace is no longer found on the earth. Revelation 6, 5 and 6 and the third seal, a black horse, famine. This money is a day's wage and here you have a picture of the shortage of food and famine on the earth. Luxury goods are not touched. Revelation 6, 7 and 8, the fourth seal. A pale horse. In the Greek it's actually a pale green horse and a quarter of the earth is destroyed by warfare, famine and disease. You have animals suddenly killing people as well and we have a horrendous situation develop developing here on the earth. Revelation 6, 9 and 11. And the fifth seal. 
Now God begins answering the prayers of all the persecuted saints who get saved during the tribulation period and God moves in on the earth's history and trouble starts in a big way. You will notice that this is the order that Jesus said it would be in Matthew 24. Revelation 6, 12-14 and the sixth seal is broken and nature starts opposing mankind on the earth. Now we know what this is. The biggest explosion the earth ever had was in 1883 when Krakatoa blew up. The explosion was massive and the results of it were this. For weeks all of Indonesia was in darkness all the time. Oil lamps had to be alight all the time so people could see. At night the sky was red, blood red, and the moon was the same as well. This is what happens here. Meteors hit the earth in vast numbers. It's estimated that the power of the explosion in Krakatoa was about 13,000 times the yield of the bomb that devastated Hiroshima in Japan. The source of that information is Wikipedia, the online encyclopedia. Verse 14 talks about hurricanes and tornadoes breaking out. Men seek to die. Notice not to be saved. The seventh seal is yet to be broken, but that seal is not broken until Revelation 8.1. The things of the seventh seal are so amazing there is total silence in heaven for 30 minutes. So what about chapter 7? Why is there a gap between the opening of the sixth seal and the seventh one? Revelation 7, this is the chapter that unlocks the book of Revelation for us. Writers, both ancient and modern, when they're writing something, go along with the story and then all of a sudden they will need to refer back to something that's happened in the past. You see it in films frequently when you get a wavy lines or a fade out or a flashback to a particular scene and then you go back to the story. God does the same thing in the book of Revelation. He uses seals, trumpets and golden bowls or vials to show us the chronological order of events and anything between is infill detail which we need. Revelation 6.17 A question is asked and Revelation 7 is God answering that question. The seventh seal takes us back to the original story in chapter 8 and it's as easy as that. You can see this sort of thing in other places in Revelation. Revelation 8 too. So the seventh seal has seven trumpets and these trumpets are seven stages within the seventh seal. Revelation 8 and 9 deal with the seven trumpets this is at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 8, 8 to 13. Revelation 9, 1 to 21. You have the six trumpets completed. Where is the seventh? Revelation 11:15. The chapter and verses between Revelation 10, 1 and 11:14 are the infill, de infill detail which we spoke about earlier. Revelation 11. 15 to 19 and the seventh trumpet is sounded. When that is sounded God reveals his kingdom on earth. Within the seven trumpets there are seven vials or golden bowls. Revelation 15 1 to 7 and Revelation 16 all the bowls are poured out on the earth. Revelation 12 13 and 14 are infill detail. Revelation 12 
deals with Satan's attempt to wipe out the nation of Israel and how God deals with Satan. Revelation 13 talks about the political system that's on the earth during the tribulation. Revelation 14 deals with Jesus' victory over that situation and from there on we're back onto the main account and the system of seals, trumpets and golden bowls keep us on course as far as chronology is concerned. Revelation 19 deals with the second advent of Jesus Christ which occurs at the end of the seven golden bowls. Revelation 17 and 18 again are in field detail. Revelation 17 deals with Mystery Babylon, the, the religious system, and how God deals with that. Revelation 18 deals with Mystery Babylon, the political system, and how God deals with that. You should now be able to read Revelation for yourself and understand it. So in essence, what you have is this. Revelation 6, 8, 9, 11, 15 to 19. Revelation 15, 16 and 19 are chronological. Revelation 7, 10 and 11, 1 to 14 are detailed. Revelation 12, 13, 14, 17 and 18 are detailed. Revelation 20, 21 and 22 are future and they occur after the tribulation. Enjoy! I'm just going to do just now uh, an overview of the book of Revelation. And when we come to look at this apocalyptic book, which means a book which warns about the coming destruction and devastation, I did do a double check actually on the meaning of the word apocalypse and one meaning of it is, re is revealing but another meaning of it is a warning of coming destruction and desolation and devastation. So when we read it we must read it in the context of God's holiness and judgments which come upon the unrighteous. We are looking at what is known in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord, which is a day of darkness and not light. That's Amos 5 verse 17. The scenario unfolds to John on the Isle of Patmos, where he is shown what has been, what is now and what is to come. From Revelation 6 onwards we have the unfolding of the judgments on Israel and the nations culminating in the rise of the Antichrist and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole time frame of the book is within a period of seven years, which are split into two time periods of three and a half years each. The second three and a half years sees the rise of a one world government headed by the Antichrist, a one world monetary system and one world religion. This time is known as the Great Tribulation and the study of it is called eschatology which is a study of end time events. The predominant source of wrath mentioned without apology is the Lord himself. It is God who is going to bring righteous wrath and judgment upon the unbelieving world and upon the nation of Israel. From chapter 6 to chapter 16 we see the outpouring of the wrath of the Lamb as only he is found worthy to open the seals. Revelation 6, 16. 
He is the source of the seal and trumpet and vile judgments. Revelation 14.7 states, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the sea and the springs of water. This is one terrible period of judgment that will come on the earth. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that the time has been shortened for the sake of the elect, the elect being his chosen people, Israel, who will be saved out of this terrible time because God has decreed its length in advance, seven years. Known as the time of the great tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved out of it. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 Satan has managed to put fear in the church because of the references to the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, etc. In fact, none of that will affect us. We will not be here. And as we study the background to this book, it will become very clear why we will be removed before the time of Jacob's trouble and the time of God's judgment upon mankind. God does not judge the righteous with the wicked ever. It has been said it's impossible to know the truth and not be responsible. We are responsible therefore to warn, exhort and encourage believers and unbelievers alike to look up and understand the signs of the times. So be blessed as you walk with me through this most amazing of books where we can read tomorrow's news today. Right, God's prophetic timetable. This is an intensive Bible study course where we will trace the roots of God's faithfulness and promises to Israel and those promises that are yet to be fulfilled to the Jewish nation. We will study where the church fits into God's eternal plan and how we can see the unfolding of prophecy in our lifetime. We will also examine what it means to us as 21st century Christians and come to some conclusions about what we believe about the Great Tribulation, the Millennium and the Second Coming of Christ. We're going to take the Bible literally, to believe God and that he is able to preserve his word to us. Unbelievers see the nations come and go, up one minute, down the next, top dog for 10 years and then the reversal, like a chaotic tennis match. The majority of Christians and non-Christians don't see it all in the hands of the most glorious planner. To them it looks like a lucky streak or a whim. They go in for sublimation, TV double loud and get involved in social action, anything so long as they don't have to think what is going to happen as far as the world is concerned. A lot of non-Christians would like to think that death comes as a relief, except that they don't know and are afraid of death. The real tragedy comes when you have Christians in the same fearful state, and they don't know that the one who loves them with all his heart is in charge of this earthly arena, and they get nervous. They see increased social disorder and they wonder if it's going to affect them, and they say, Lord, are you really in control? and they find they have the same tensions and the same disturbances as non-Christians. 
They suffer with fear and doubt about the future. This course is designed to help those people along. People who are nervous of the future are ignorant of God's prophetic timetable for this planet. By the end of this course you will not be ignorant. You will know exactly the way we are going to go. We will take the literal, plain interpretation of scripture, including the prophetic passages. We will let them mean what they say as we do the rest of the Bible. Firstly, I want to look at the sweep of history from the beginning right up to the present time and then on into the future. The first big division is Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis 11. That broadly covers 2,000 years of mankind's history. The rest of the Old Testament covers the next 2,000 years. Of these first 11 chapters, seven of them deal with the events that occur within about a year or two. Chapters 1 and 2 deal with the six days of creation. Chapter 3, the fall of man. Chapters 4 to 6, procreation. And God's declaration of judgment on man's wickedness. Chapter 7, and we have the flood which lasted one solar year and the others deal with the rest. In these 11 chapters, called the seedbed of the Bible, we have as much information as we need. God's prophetic timetable is a picture of God's grace and judgment in the face of mankind's disobedience. To understand where we're going, we need to keep three things in tension. Human responsibility, that's free will. God's immutability, he never changes, and the angelic conflict. Without any one of these three, you could be described as sitting on a two-legged stool. In Luke 10, 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. This shows us two things. Jesus, the pre-existent one, and the existence of Satan and his first fall. So from the creation story we can see that Satan was already fallen as he took the form of a serpent. So in the garden God places Adam and Eve and gives them the most precious gift, free will, the right to choose. But Eve chooses to listen to the serpent and her husband listens to her and the rest is, as they say, history. Within a very short time, man is so corrupt that God has to bring judgment, saving only a remnant, Noah and his family. In Genesis 12, God says, I'm going to choose one nation to be my own and they're going to be my beloved people, my missionaries to the rest of the world. And the world is going to learn about who I am through them and my dealings with them. That nation we know as the nation of Israel. When was the last time Israel wasn't in the news? For decades, a nation no bigger than Wales has dominated the headlines of the world. Whether we recognise it or not, Israel, the nation, the state of Israel, is the centre of the world so far as God is concerned. When you want to look at where we are chronologically, look at what is happening in Israel and take your compass bearing from this. Jerusalem is where Jesus is coming back. The Mount of Olives is where his foot will rest. 
So we need to be accurate in our assessment and understanding of what the scriptures say about this tiniest of nations, who, scripture says, are the apple of God's eye. Many people say God has adopted the church now as his chosen people and has finished with Israel. But is that really what the word of God says? The subject of Israel has to do with the character of God, whether he is a faithful covenant-keeping God and whether his word is true or not. In this first session we will be examining these differing views on the church and Israel, so we will look at the truth about Israel and its purposes as ordained by Almighty God, using the scriptures as our authority. We will go on to see why the history of Israel and where she fits in God's eternal plan is so important when we study the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first thing we absolutely have to understand is that the Bible is a Jewish book. It was written by Jews, the whole thing. The only exception could be the Gospel of Luke, but no one is quite sure whether he was a Gentile believer or not, so we are fairly safe in saying that the whole 66 books are of Jewish origin. Setting that stone in place will help us so much when we come to look at the place of the church in end time events and in the book of Revelation in particular. In God's sovereign choice of a nation to be born through the line of Abraham, he was making a decree about the whole future of mankind. Because from Judah, a tribe of Israel, would the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, come. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Saviour. Jesus was a Jew, is a Jew, and will remain a Jew for eternity by God's sovereign election and choice. That is why it's so important that we look at the scriptures from a Jewish, not Western viewpoint. Or we can wrest the scriptures to our own destruction, as it says in 2 Peter 3.16. Truthfully, we can get into all kinds of trouble trying to make things fit if we don't look at the scriptures in the context in which they were written. I'm not suggesting that we become Jewish but that we use every means we can to understand what the Spirit of God is saying to us. A text out of context is a pretext. Some of what I will be teaching will be to show you the false teachings that are current in the church, the reasons why they are wrong, and I will be laying the truth of the Word of God down alongside so that you can make up your own mind which is truth and which is error. Israel was called and chosen to be a light among the nations, pointing to the one true God, in the same way as we, the Church of Christ, are called and chosen to be a light showing forth the way of salvation for mankind through Jesus alone. Exodus 4.22, the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So let's just look for a moment at historical Israel. In Genesis 12, 1-3, we see the call of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy father's country. This is the split in the human race. 
God is sovereignly calling one man to himself for his purposes. From this man, he declares, I will make a great nation. In Genesis 15:13, we see God making a promise to Abraham of a son whom a nation will come from. And God prophesies over him that his offspring will spend 400 years in Egypt and afterwards will come out with great wealth. In Genesis 17:5, we see Abraham described as the father of many nations and his name is changed to Abraham. This is part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Always remember that God is a God of covenant and a covenant-making and keeping God. There are many covenants in the Old Testament, always involving the shedding of blood. They are both unconditional and conditional. The covenant God makes with Abraham here is an unconditional covenant. That means God is going to do it with no help from Abraham. He does not have to do anything to qualify for the promise God is making. This is God's set and determinate counsel coming forth. In Genesis 21, after a false start with the birth of Ishmael, where Abraham and Sarah did take the law into their own hands, we have the birth of Isaac, the son of promise. And incidentally, the whole Palestinian problem is the result of Abraham listening to Sarai and going into her maid, Hagar. Thought-provoking stuff. Genesis 32, and we have the birth of the nation of Israel, as Jacob, the son of Isaac and Rebekah, Genesis 25:20 has a name change like his grandfather. He becomes Israel after he wrestles with God and prevails. Genesis 32:28. You can see from Revelation 3:12 the same is promised to overcomers, a new name. In the book of Exodus, we see Moses raised up as a leader of the now nation of Israel, who is to lead them out of the prophesied 400-year captivity into the land promised by Abraham. Leviticus shows us how to approach a holy God by walk, worship and service, and Numbers follows Exodus in story terms where Exodus left off. Numbers is the book of the wilderness wanderings, occasioned by Israel's unbelief and failure to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy is Moses parting counsels to Israel, repeating much of what he'd already taught them and warned them of. The book of Joshua is concerned with the conquest of the promised land and Israel's failure to obey God in destroying the nations before them. The book concludes with much land yet to be taken and allocation of the land that God had promised to Abraham and his seed to the tribes. As I said earlier, your view about Israel is determined by how you interpret scripture. Not only that, your view of God himself is determined by your interpretation of scripture. So if you believe that God has changed his mind about his promises to Israel, and now is concerned only with the church, you do have some questions to answer. Not the least of which is how do you know where you stand right now? If God has broken his promise to Israel, may he not do the same with you? 
Let's just examine the two widely held views about the nation of Israel to enable us to see where the errors occur and why they occur and lay the word of God down alongside. There are generally two views held about this nation. The first view says it is true that God did have a special relationship with Israel but that special relationship no longer exists. They say it is true that God made certain promises to Israel and they are fulfilled. Therefore God has no ob more obligation to them. They also say that the promises that pertain to Israel now pertain to the church. They might also say that because Israel blew it so badly God got fed up with them, turned his back on them and is now concentrating on the church instead. Either way, the church is now what they call spiritual Israel. For this group of people, the church is everything. These people say that the fact that Israel are back in the land has no significance at all. The fact that they took over Jerusalem in 1967 does not mean anything. A none too close scrutiny of the scriptures would call into question this standpoint. It does affect the way the book of Revelation is interpreted and the interpretation of end-time events generally, as we will see later on. It also raises more questions than it answers. These people would say they were pro-Jesus, pro-the Church, pro-Kingdom, but not pro-Israel. The second view, which has always been the minority view, though in the early Church it was the majority view, says that God has made unconditional covenants with Israel and promises which have not yet been fulfilled. So while we accept that the church is glorious and wonderful, the bride of Christ, and has significance in the purposes of God, that does not mean God has finished with Israel. National, literal Israel still has a future. This again is key in the interpretation of the book of Revelation. People who take this view, and I am one of them, would say we are pro-Jesus, pro-Church, pro-the Kingdom and pro-Israel. And incidentally I am also pro-the rapture of the Church and pro-the literal, actual, millennial reign and rule of Jesus Christ. But we'll go into that later. So those are the two main points of view in the Church about Israel. It's always good to ask when you're joining a church or denomination where they stand regarding Israel. You can tell a lot about how they interpret the scriptures from their answer. Because not only does this involve Israel, but if you think a little deeply, it involves the integrity of God himself. If they maintain God has finished with literal Israel, the question we have to ask then, does he keep his promises or not? So, does Israel have a future? The question is, does Israel have a future as far as God is concerned? By the time we come to the end of today, you'll be able to make up your own mind about what you believe about the scriptures and what they say regarding the nation and future of Israel. As far as the present is concerned, they are in a period of judgment, the fifth cycle of judgment which means that they are dispersed among the nations. 
we will look more fully at the five cycles of discipline tomorrow morning in order to understand the book of Daniel and why that is so important in unravelling end time events. The next question we have to ask is, does God ever change? The immutability of God, his changelessness. When we suggest that God might either have changed his mind or broken covenant, we are attacking his character. What we are saying is that he is no longer immutable. He is now subject to changing his mind. He has become whimsical. Love you today, but tomorrow, well. Can you see how important our interpretation of scripture is? By saying that God has finished with Israel, has changed his mind about his covenant promises to them, and is now concentrating solely on the church, we are calling him a liar. Beloved, this is not a light thing. So let's start looking at some scriptures. I'm not going to them to prove something. I'm going to them to establish what God has actually said. So here we go. Jeremiah 31, 35-37 Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. What God is saying here is that if the sun doesn't get up one morning, then Israel is cut off as far as he is concerned. God is saying if the heavens above can be measured, then Israel is cut off as a nation as far as he is concerned. What we need to know here in the 21st century is, has man been able to measure heaven and the foundations of the earth yet? Just recently some information came into my hands from the internet regarding black holes and the cell structure of the human body. Having read these, though not I confess having understood them, God has become even more vast to me than ever. I'll just read some of it to you. This is not Christian, this is scientific information. This absolutely amazes me. I mean, I can't uh, get my mind round it, but this is what the scientific information says about black holes. Until very recently, scientists believed there were only two types of black holes. The first kind, stellar black holes, formed from the remains of collapsed stars that have at most 10 times the mass of the Sun. The second time, type, supermassive black holes, are believed to have been formed when the universe was very young. It's also believed they are the most common, existing at the very core of every galaxy in the universe. 
these gigantic black holes have masses up to that of a billion suns. I mean, I, it's just too much for me. Up to a billion suns. We know how we feel when the sun comes out and it gets too hot. What is our God? He is so amazing, so huge, so vast. And we're calling into question his integrity. So in Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37, God is saying, if ever these things cease, then Israel will cease to be a nation as far as I'm concerned. The term forever or ever means that there will always be a group of people who will form the nation of Israel. So how is this working out? Can you think of any nation that has stayed a nation when it's been dispersed among the nations? A Jew is a Jew wherever he goes in the world. Now if I as an English person went and lived in America or somewhere else I'd very soon lose my nationality. I'd be swallowed up and become a naturalised American or Dane or whatever if I went to Denmark. Not so the Jewish nation. They still exist wherever they are. Why? Because God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should change his mind. That's Numbers 23.19. Has he said, and will he not do? God made a promise to King David that one of his descendants would always be on the throne forever. But God only counts the times when Israel were in fellowship. So there were times when there wasn't a descendant of David on the throne. But that when they were back in fellowship, there was always a descendant of David ready to be on the throne. The genealogy of Jesus proves that he is a direct descendant of David and when he comes back as King Jesus, he will sit on that throne and the promise of God to David will be fulfilled forever. Before 1948, there was no nation of Israel in the land. But as soon as God wanted them back in the land, back came a group of people to form the nation of Israel in the land. The people who hold the view that God has somehow finished with Israel do not realise something about the character of God. For a God that can promise things to Israel and then dump them is not the type of God to put your trust in. And the subject of Israel calls the character of God into question. How can we make such a statement? So these verses in Jeremiah either makes the truth of what God has said stronger or it makes the lie bigger. Are the heavens measured? They are not. We've just seen how vast they are. No instrument has ever been made or will ever be made that can measure the limits of God's creation. Has the earth ever been measured? It has not. In fact, the skin of the earth has never been scratched because it's impossible because of the tremendous heat. God has made sure that the nation of Israel will always be around because in these verses in Jeremiah, God has stated the impossible for man. He's saying, if you can do this, you can prove I'm not who I say I am. We can say with absolute confidence with Paul, has God cast off his people? Certainly not. Romans 11.1 1. 
We can see things today that show us clearly that God has not finished with Israel. However, the survival of Israel is one thing. The fact that many nations are against them is another. Why is it that people are against the Jews and have been for many nations, for many generations? Jews have been hounded and persecuted like no other nation on earth, even by professing, professing Christians. In the natural, it's impossible to explain why the hatred of the Jews is so worldwide and has gone on for over 2,000 years. It's only when you see the spiritual side of this that you can explain it. It's Satan's work. The devil wants to destroy the Jews. If he can do this, he will be able to prove God a liar. God has made promises to the Jews, and if Satan can destroy the Jews, God cannot keep his promises to them. If God had finished with Israel, anti-Jewish feeling would have ended 2,000 years ago. There wouldn't be no point in it. Why should Satan go after the Jews if God has finished with them? doesn't make sense. But if God hasn't finished with them, then they still have a future and a hope. The anti-Jewish feeling so shows very clearly that God has not finished with Israel. And Israel, as far as God is concerned, still have a future. In fact, the times which are to come, they will play a very prominent part. Many great empires have come and gone, including our own, and never been heard of again. The Assyrian Empire was vast, but where is it today? Babylonian Empire likewise disappeared forever, but little Israel goes on and on. If you talk to people who study ancient history, they'll tell you that the survival of Israel is little short of a miracle. Satan's always been after obliterating this race. At one time, the line of kings from which Jesus was to come came within one young boy of being extinguished, but God. You will be aware that Satan's first attempt, after God's curse, was to incite Cain to rise up against Abel, who was a man of God. Then we see him again, destroying all the boy children at the time of Moses. And here again, in 2 Chronicles 22, 10-12, he attempts through wicked Queen Athaliah to extinguish the royal line through which Jesus was to come. He failed. The child Joash was crowned at the age of six. Bring it up to date, Herod tried to kill the baby Jesus by having all the boys under two slaughtered. We celebrate Christmas but never remember the slaughter of the innocents. Many Christians today do not understand what the survival of the Jews really means. It's about Satan's continuing attempts to discredit God and postpone his own destiny, the lake of fire. He's been judged, sentence has been passed, but it's not yet been carried out. And in the meantime, he will use every weapon he can to discredit God by trying to kill off his people and the promises God has made. If Satan can break one promise of God, he knows he will effectively have broken every promise of God. Therefore, Satan wants desperately to destroy every single Jew, because then God's word to Abraham will have been broken. And if he can manage to break that word of God, he would get off scot-free, because God's promise to destroy him would also be effectively broken.
This is the basic reason why the Jews have always been at the centre of persecution and hatred. It is a satanically inspired strategy. Genesis 12, 1-3 Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Cast iron promises. We can see a repetition of this in Numbers 23, 19 and 20. Here we have Balaam, what you might call a failed prophet. He could prophesy all right, but he was a man who could be bribed. So he wasn't a good man according to the scripture, but he knew a thing or two about God. Here he's been asked by Balak, a Moabite king, to curse Israel. And this is what happens. The Spirit of the Lord is on him and he speaks. God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot reverse it. Then in Numbers 24, 5 and 8. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with arrows. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who will rouse him? Not what Balak wanted to hear at this point. So why does Balaam make such a statement? Because God is not a man that he might lie. You cannot break what God has said will come to pass. This is the conclusion we must come to. God has made unconditional promises to Israel and they will come to pass. God must keep them. Otherwise he has a flaw in his character. It's quite amazing what people will say to explain away the promises God has made to Israel. Roger Price talks of a book someone wrote explaining away the promises in Genesis by saying they only related to Abraham himself and died out when Abraham died. So the group who believe that the church is spiritual Israel say that God has made promises to literal Israel but now he has no longer any intention of keeping them but has transferred these promises to a group who call themselves spiritual Israel. And they will use all the promises as relating to them and all the references to sin, failure and judgment as relating to literal Israel. Selective reading. If God has just dumped Israel, beware, Christian, because he may very well dump you. But God is not like that. He's a God who, if he makes a covenant, will keep it. There is still fullness to come for Israel. Nowhere in scripture is the church called spiritual Israel. 
but if they are well informed people may quote this verse to you to substantiate what they say and the verse is Galatians 6.16 and as many as walk according to this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God Paul is saying even those Jews who believe in Jesus will experience a blessing Paul is saying these are the Israel of God who I'm talking to Jesus Jewish believers in the Messiah. Paul is saying here is not against the Jews. They are called by him the Israel of God. But by taking this verse and using it to say that the whole church is called spiritual Israel is taking a text out of context which is a pretext. It is pushing it too far. And by the way Paul would never have got away with saying the church is now spiritual Israel. It's only now, 2,000 odd years later, that people hear this rubbish, rubbish and don't challenge it, but believe it instead. There's a lot of that going on these days. People who say that God has finished with Israel have a real problem and they get into a mess trying to explain scriptures. Whenever Israel is mentioned in regard to sin, failure or judgment or being put down they always take it as literal Israel anything else to do with blessing they take as being theirs as spiritual Israel I'll just give you a couple examples of this there was one in Isaiah uh, 19 that they quote verses 23 to 25 in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt, Assyria and even a blessing in the midst of the land. So they take this literally and say that these nations are given in order of preference and that Israel will be third. It does not mean that. It just means that there are three nations mentioned here. So because Israel is put on a par, that is literal, because they don't appear to be anything special. Now, whenever Israel or Jerusalem or Mount Zion is spoken of in terms of supremacy, blessing, or the top of God's wonderful plan, that is to be taken as to refer to spiritual Israel, the church. Beloved, we cannot approach the scriptures like that, dividing as we think fit into blessing and cursing. One more example. In Isaiah 62, 1-4, this whole teaching is given as being about the church, yet these verses are speaking quite clearly about literal Israel. I'm not saying that if God gives you those verses, you cannot take them for yourself. What I am saying is that arbitrarily looking at scripture the way those who call themselves spiritual Israel do is completely wrong. The final example will lead us into the book of Romans and it's Isaiah 2, 1-3. This is used by the spiritual Israel teachers to say that this is not Israel but spiritual Israel and they say that the church is going to be the tops and all the nations are going to want what the church have got and will come to the church to ask how these things should be done. I wish. 
These people are also dangerously close to what is called dominion teaching, which is that the church will win everyone over to become Christians and then Jesus can come back. In other words, we will have done it all. Aren't we just the clever ones? Of course, this is completely untrue and totally opposed to scripture. As I'm always saying, there's a lot of dossy stuff out there. Once you've made up your own minds what the scripture says, just ask a few questions of the church you want to join. They don't have to agree with you and it's all right to be with them. Just don't be influenced by their wrong beliefs, that's all. We must do everything in our power to live in peace with one another and arguments about doctrine almost always end in division, so don't be divisive. Just know what you know, believe what you believe and live in the good of it. So once you understand this passage, then you understand something about the book of Romans. Those who say that God has just dumped Israel and changed horses, as it were, haven't thought it through, because as I said before, if this is the case, he may very well dump them if they don't measure up. But God is not like that. He's a God who keeps covenant in spite of our intransigence, praise his wonderful name. Once you understand this, you will understand something about the whole book of Romans. There have been many commentaries on this book and usually the problems start just after chapter 8 because Paul has been trotting along fine for eight chapters and then suddenly he turns his attention to the Jews. In chapter 8, Paul says God's made all sorts of things available to us as Christians and praise God for all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So let's just quickly have a look at exactly what God promises us in Romans 8. We are sons, we are adopted, we are joint heirs, we are foreknown, we are predestined, we are called, we are chosen, we are glorified, all things work to the good, nothing can separate us from the love of God. If God be for us, who can be against us? These are wonderful promises to us who are the church in this day. How do you think these statements would have affected the early church? Remember it was only 10 or 20 years before that the Jews had rejected their Messiah. Now they would have sat there and said, sat there and said this. And remember their Bible was the Old Testament so they would have said these are fine glowing words but they're exactly the same words used about Israel and look at the state they're in now. How can we believe what you are saying in Romans 8 when Israel is in the state it is? It's a problem for us. This is where the commentators get into trouble and some say that Paul follows Romans 8 with 9, 10 and 11 which deal with Israel because he had to deal with the Jews so he puts the comments in there. Some even suggest there should be brackets round Romans 9, 10 and 11. And if you're a Christian, go straight to Romans 12. Do not pass go. Go straight to jail. A bit like biblical monopoly. The fact is that if people say things like this they have not understood, we should actually all be able to have an answer to why the book of Romans is written as it is. God has promised us these wonderful things. What has happened to Israel then? 
Paul gives us the answer in chapters 9, 10 and 11. Paul doesn't answer the question by saying the church is now spiritual Israel. That would have taken three sentences. Then he could have gone straight into chapter 12. But he doesn't. Because there's a big problem with the question of what's happened to Israel. For the remainder of this study, we're going to see the glorious answer Paul gives to this question. It's absolutely necessary for us in order that we can understand God's purposes for his people Israel and understand where they fit into the book of Revelation. You see, if you take the Jews out, you will have to fit everything that happens into the dispensation of the church and that will lead you to thinking you're going to go through the Great Tribulation. There is no other conclusion you can come to. Romans 9, 1-5 I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, eternally blessed God. Amen. So the first thing Paul says in Romans 9, and incidentally he repeats it in Romans 10, is that he loves Israel. He made that statement because he's been accused of being against the Jews, so he states how much he loves Israel, and in verses 3 and 4 he's talking about literal Israel. So he stated both his love and God's love for Israel. He stated that God still has a plan and a purpose for the Jew. Then he goes on to explain in more detail, verses 6 to 8. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac shall your seed be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. Paul makes an interesting statement in verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. We have the same problem today. Not all who call themselves Christians are Christians. In verse 8 we see it's the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's seed. And remember, Paul is talking about Israel at this point. Of course, we too are the children of promise, having believed on Messiah Jesus. But here, Paul is talking about literal Israel. Now, within the group of people called Israel are two groups. All Israel, all Jews, have come from Abraham. And many Jews, even today, believe that because they are related to Abraham by descent, they're all going to be all right. Both Jesus and John the Baptist met this point of view in their days on the earth in the land of Israel. Do you remember when people went up to John and because they were descended from Abraham thought that was enough? And John said, God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. 
go away until you show the fruits, fruits of repentance. Matthew 3 verse 9. The point John was making was, yes, you are natural Israel, children of the flesh, but you're not real Israel. You do not believe on the Messiah. Jesus said the same thing in John 8.33. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? The Roman soldiers were in the streets and they'd been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years and they say they've never been in bondage to anyone. Selective memory. Jesus was very loving and didn't point out the soldiers or mention their captivity in Egypt. That shows the grace and the mercy of God. I would have said, what are you talking about? What are these Roman soldiers then? And what about the captivity? Jesus does no such thing. He just goes on loving them and goes on with what he was saying to them. What Jesus was looking for then when he made this statement here in these verses in John, what was he looking for? Jesus knew they'd come from Abraham, but he was looking to see if they had the faith of Abraham. True Israel, as defined by Paul, is that first of all they have the genes of Abraham, that is they have come physically from him. The second point is that they have the faith of Abraham. So within the group of people called Israel, there's a subgroup which are true Israel. And this group have both the genes and the faith of Abraham. That's the point that Jesus is making here. If you don't have both elements living and working in you, you aren't true Israel. Romans 9, 6 and 7 but it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are seed of Abraham. But in Isaac shall your seed be called. Isaac was the seed of promise or the seed of faith. The true descendants of Abraham are descended physically from him and spiritually from him, that is, they have the faith of Abraham. Abraham.